Our topic this evening is the march towards Jewish independence. And we're going to discuss the, the last days of Jonathan and the career of Simon. Simon was the last of the five Maccabean brothers, the Hashmonai brothers actually, um, all of whom will die at the hands of either the enemy or some treasonous Jew. And we're talking about the years 145 to 134 before the Common Era. So in 145, Alexander Ballas, who had been a contender to the Seleucid throne, died after being dumped by his father-in-law, Ptolemy VI. For ineptitude, uh, Ptolemy tri- uh, tried to attach himself towards the Demetrius, Demetrius II. Ptolemy died in the process as well, but he lived long enough to see the, the severed head of Alexander Ballas. That's the way they got Nachas in those years. <laughs> Okay, now, from a Jewish point of view, how does any of this matter? Well, the answer is because Jonathan had been a loyal soldier of Alexander Ballas, he's now on the wrong side of the the fight for this (coughs) this Seleucid throne. And you could see why he's at odds with Demetrius II and how Demetrius might send forces to oppose him and try to do damage to Judea. Well, how does Jonathan react to all this? First of all, he besieges the Acra, which is the, uh, the, the heathen stronghold just on the edges of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which was one of the last holdouts of non-Jewish uh, strength, um, demographic and um, political military strength in the, in, in the Jewish heartland. He was afraid to do this so long as the Seleucid kingdom was strong and he was an ally of the guy who was on the winning team. But now that he's sort of a free agent, and the only contender to the throne who's alive was his adversary, nothing is stopping him from trying to conquer the last uh, pagan stronghold in Jerusalem. Demetrius doesn't like this, and he calls for a meeting with uh, Jonathan at Akko, at Ptolemaeus. Jonathan brings with him tribute and a lot of Jewish VIPs to show that he is uh, supported by the larger Jewish population and is not just some uh, rebel bandit leader. And he also brings with him the political uh, trump card of being willing to lift the siege at the Acre in, in return for recognition of his rule over the Jews and peace. In other words, I'll stop bothering your people in, in my region, if you recognize that I'm the authority figure and you leave us alone. And maybe some other tax concessions. The meeting goes well, the bribe is paid, some talents of silver, and Jonathan is confirmed as a friend of the king, the taxation is reduced on Judea, and the border regions with Samaria are annexed to Judea, which was something I mentioned last week, that uh, Lod, uh, Ramatayim, and uh, Ephraim, which are the southern sections of Samaria, become part of Judea, and this is important for expanding the the borders of the, the Jewish state. Okay. It sounds like it all went well. But, uh, is Demetrius reliable? That's always going to be the question. Will his reign uh, last uh, any length of time? And can you trust him to adhere to the terms of the deal? Well, probably not. Demetrius makes a big mistake. He fires his army during peacetime. Uh, Some American presidents have a tendency to do that. what's What's the problem with firing your army during peacetime? So, number one, you're a target from other pretenders to the throne who might be able to muster some troops and then outnumber you. Demetrius. Uh, but, so Demetrius becomes a target uh, from 
a political point of view, but also people who were in the army were accustomed to getting paid. And in the old world, there was no Veterans Administration to dole out pensions and give health benefits. Once you were fired, that was it. You went home to the farmland. But if you didn't have any farm, then you were a career soldier. What are you going to do? You starve. So what's, the, what's your best option? Depose the king and put someone else in who will fight some wars and keep you employed. So that's uh, exactly what happens. The officers are disgruntled. And Trifon, uh, who's one of the leading officers... Uh, finds Antiochus VI, the son of Alexander Ballas, in Arabia, and crowns him the king. This is, this is not the only time that something like this uh, will happen. It's a phenomenon um, in the, the Macedonian monarchies, in that children of the monarch usually don't live with their parents. They live somewhere else, either because they're hostages to a higher power, whether to Rome or to whomever, and they're held hostages for, you know, as, for guaranteeing good behavior, or they live elsewhere just as a safety precaution in case I, the king, am assassinated or get killed or overthrown, my progeny will live to, to, you know, to tell the story, live another day. And maybe they'll come back and, and fight to regain what was lost. Well, that's what happened here. Antiochus VI, his father is dead, uh, having lost to meet Demetrius, and now some upstart uh, military officer will use this child king, supposed child king, um, to serve his own agenda. Okay, Jonathan complained to Demetrius that the people at the Acre were pestering the Jews of Jerusalem. Demetrius agreed to remove the Acre in exchange for Jewish troops to help him quell the popular riots at Antioch, because it's not just some of the officer corps that doesn't like his rule. It seems that in the capital city, no one really likes him. And when you're not well-liked at, uh, at home, even if you're well-liked in the far-flung provinces, it doesn't help you much, because bottom line is some local could stab you and then you're dead. He needs to have protection locally in the capital city. Who does he turn to? He turns to the Jews. Why the Jews? Because Jonathan, as a Hasmonean military leader, has a few thousand uh, uh, loyal soldiers who fight valiantly, have a track record of winning, and his own army is against him, so he needs the Jews to come to his, his defense. Well, Jonathan agrees. And 3,000 Jewish fighters come to Antioch, they conquer the city, or so it goes in the first book of Maccabees, but the first book of Maccabees is propaganda for the Jews, extolling the Hasmoneans, so they make it seem as though the Jews with 3,000 soldiers conquered a large capital city. In fact, the city was already subdued, and the 3,000 Jewish soldiers simply did the mop-up job uh, and, and cleaned out, you know, killed those who were the remaining fighters. But the, the Jews did have an opportunity to kill many pagans and take a lot of booty. This was a wonderful thing. I mean, here the, uh, the Jews who have been fighting 20, for 20 years, 22 years at this point, a, war, a long, drawn-out war for independence, and always on their own territory, on their own soil, in the, in the land of Israel, desperately trying to uh, get every kilometer they can under their control, now have the opportunity to go to a faraway place, a heathen city, and just mercilessly slaughter anti-Semites, or just general pagans. Uh, you can understand why they had a, uh, had a fun time doing it. Uh, Demetrius failed to keep his promises with Jonathan. Again, the issue is, is, a, is the Seleucid king reliable to keep his word? Jonathan goes out of his way to send help hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Good, loyal soldiers. They win. 
Now, it's time for Demetrius to remove the acra, the thorn in the side of Jerusalem. But he won't do it. He doesn't comply. And um, now we know that you, you can't count on Demetrius. So sometime later, Trifon arrives with Antiochus VI, and Demetrius is forced to flee. So Demetrius' efforts, with the help of the Jewish soldiers to prop up his own uh, rule, was short-lived. He has to run away, and Antiochus VI is now in charge. Really, Trifon is in charge, with Antiochus VI being just a child puppet. Um, Antiochus confirms Jonathan as the high priest, and makes Shimon the military governor, the strategos, of the coastal cities from the ladder of Tyre all the way to the Egyptian border. Basically, all the lands of uh, the uh, Mediterranean coastline that historically never really, really were very Jewish, they were Philistine and Phoenician, so now Shimon, the Jew, the Hasmonean brother, is the, go- the military governor over a largely Gentile area. Why does Antiochus VI cozy up to the Hasmoneans? Because he understands that the battle with Demetrius isn't over. Demetrius had to flee, but he's not dead yet. And the Jews have had a falling out with Demetrius. So this is an opportunity to come on good terms with the Jews and use their military strength to his advantage. But of course, it's only going to be temporary. Because as with all these uh, figures, these heathen kings, they do what's good for them in the moment, but never with any sense of true loyalty. Okay. So Jonathan was the regional commander for Antiochus VI. And he takes advantage of this position to benefit the Jews. He takes Ashkelon without a fight. And Gaza resists, but is defeated. At the surface level, he's doing this on behalf of Antiochus VI's uh, desire to restore control over the entirety of his kingdom. But in reality, you have Jonathan, a Jewish uh, military leader, using Jewish soldiers to conquer territory that's in Eretz Israel with an eye towards eventual independence in an expanded state of Judea. Remember, the old Judean state from the beginning of the Second Temple period was very, very small. It was just the Jerusalem area and its vicinity. Now we're going to expand the borders to the west, to the east, to the north, especially to the north, under the guise of helping some Seleucid king, but really just in the better interest of the Jews. Okay. Uh, the battle against Demetrius' generals at Keresh in the, in the Galilee uh, almost proved to be disastrous. There was an ambush, and Jonathan was near losing. But he prayed and single-handedly defeated the enemy. Single-handedly defeated the enemy. Maccabees won. Do you believe that? Maccabees won. It's like when uh, Grandpa Simpson says that the Wright brothers single-handedly won the Civil War in a thimble full of, full of, a fuel, a fuel of corn oil. You know, it's, uh, you make up a story like that. Uh, Jonathan didn't single-handedly win any battle. But this book is, with its hyperbole, that favors the heroes of the Hasmonean family. So yes, he won the war, and it says that he prayed... There's a focus on religiosity. Remember, this is a religious work, proving the divine and cosmic significance of the Hasmonean heroes. They weren't just brave fighters. They were special in God's eyes because of their righteousness, their piety. Okay. So at this time, having won a significant victory and conquering much of Eretz Israel in the name of a heathen king, but still Jews conquering Jewish territory... 
Jonathan renews diplomatic alliances with both Rome and Sparta. He's not asking for help, because after all, he says, we rely upon our holy books and our prayers to our deity. He's merely asking for a renewal of friendship and brotherhood, especially with Sparta, as uh, common descendants of Abraham. Were the Spartans descendants of Abraham? Well, of Abraham, not Noah, I'm talking about Abraham. Okay, so the Spartans are definitely not descendants of Abraham. But phony documents were thrown around back then uh, of genealogical lists claiming that the Spartans had a common ancestor as the Jews. Everyone knew it was a fake. But sometimes in Greek letters... You're, you're allowed to indulge in falsehood, and it's okay, and everyone goes along for the, for the ride. Um, Josephus confirms, the book of Maccabees doesn't say this, but Josephus confirms that the diplomatic mission was successful and the treaties were renewed. According to the book of Maccabees, all we have is that embassies were sent to Rome and Sparta, not what the response was from those parties. Josephus says, yes, the, the, the deals were, were renewed. The embassy was sent because the time of God's wrath appeared to be over. And um, in these letters, it's the first time that the Jewish Council of Elders acts in concert with a Hasmonean leader. Because if you go back to the original treaty with Rome in 161, it was conducted uh, by the Council of Elders of the Jews, the, the, the organs of national leadership, not Judah Maccabee, because Judah Maccabee never held an official position. So it was the Council of Elders and the Roman Senate. This time, it's the Council of Elders at Jerusalem together with Jonathan. Why the difference between Jonathan in the year 143 and Judas in the year 161, where Jonathan is included but Judas wasn't? Answer is very simple. Jonathan is the high priest. He's the Kohen Gadol. He has been since the year 152. That is a significant office of state. It's an ecclesiastical office, a religious one, but it also has political significance. And, and the, the Council of Elders could no longer ignore him and say he's just some rebel leader. He wasn't. He was the lead, leader of the people. Okay. Um. <coughs> Jonathan fought uh, more battles against those forces who were loyal to Demetrius in areas beyond Judea including in the Lebanese mountains. He also built fortresses all over Judea. He increased the height of Jerusalem's wall, and he further isolated the people who were uh, at the Acre, the thorn in the side of Jerusalem. All these things were, were done with an eye towards eventual independence, that we're going to get rid of the last pockets of, he, of uh, heathen influence in Judea, we're going to expand the borders, we're going to throw our weight around even beyond the borders, uh, and look for allies abroad. Interestingly, uh, Yafo, the port of Yafo, was another area where the, the Hasmoneans were interested in conquering and dispossessing the, the, the non-Jews and placing pious Jews in, the, uh, in their stead. Reason for that, of course, is if you want to uh, petition Rome or your Western allies for help, how can you get to them? Only if you have access to the sea. You need a port with ships to be able to send messengers, me, messengers to your uh, powerful friends abroad. That's the importance of Yafo. Isn't that why later on Herod had Caesarea? Correct. Okay. So, Trifon wanted at this point 
to dump Antiochus VI, the child king who was uh, a useful idiot, and make himself the king. He hatched a plot to kill Jonathan, because Jonathan is now too powerful. It's very obvious that Jonathan is not just some vassal who's a high priest uh, and maybe has a few soldiers, but Jonathan is the, is the leader of the Jews with, with a, a nationalistic uh, fervor. And he knows Jonathan's going to want to have independence at some point. So Trifon, looking to become the king and an undisputed leader of the whole region, needs to have a pretext to kill uh, his ally Jonathan. So they meet at Beit Sha'an, Scythopolis. Okay, at Beit Sha'an. And Jonathan knows something's not right here. When you know something's not right, you, uh, you come well prepared. All right? Uh, they say there's a joke. Asav uh, is like a Hasidish Rebbe. How so? Comes with 400 men and he wants to kill his brother. All right, so... <laughs> um, what did, what did Jonathan do? He comes with 40,000 men. 40,000 men. Is that so that may be exaggerated. Maybe exaggerated. But Trifon says to him, Hey, listen, we're not at war. Why are you coming with such a large force? You come with, with a large force if we're about to engage in battle. But we're allies. So what are you doing? Send them home. So does he send them home? Yes, he does. Okay, the, the army goes back to Judea. They march southward. And only 3,000 men stay with him as they march towards Ptolemais, towards Akko, on the coastline. 2,000 men are dropped off in the Jezreel Valley. Why? Okay, so they're, they're, from different perspectives, we have to explain this. From the perspective of Trifon, he's hoping... The, 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 the smallest possible number of men will remain with Jonathan as they get to the gates of, of Akko so that whatever plot was hatched against these people, he'll be able to pull it off and kill them all. From Jonathan's perspective, why uh, garrison 2,000 soldiers in the Jezreel Valley? Well, very simply, if you have soldiers, if you have boots on the ground somewhere, it's your territory. You control it. And he's trying to explain, expand the borders of Judea to include... The, the vast bulk of Eretz Israel. Well, the Galilee, especially the southern Galilee, which had some Jews there, but was still predominantly heathen, doesn't have any Jewish force to say that the Jews control it. Well, now it does. 2,000 soldiers. So you're always looking to have a footprint militarily all over the countryside. But that leaves him only 1,000 men uh, to go to the city of Akko, where he's going to have his rendezvous with Trifon. What happens? As they get to the gates of the city inside... The citizenry, who are in cahoots with Trifon, close the gates behind the, the entering soldiers, and they massacre the Jews. They don't kill Jonathan. Jonathan is kept as a hostage. But the army, the thousand soldiers, they're all dead. Okay, so now we have a big problem on our hands. Because the neighboring Gentiles plot to kill the Jews, whom they now see as leaderless and hopeless. When was there an earlier plot to kill the Jews by the neighboring Gentiles? We learned this a couple of weeks ago. When did that happen? Okay, after 
the uh, victory in the Hanukkah story, when the temple was cleansed and the regular cult of the, uh, the Korbanot was, was re- re- reestablished in the days of Judah Maccabee, the neighbors in the Transjordanian region and other parts of Eretz Yisrael, which were beyond the borders of Judea, began to attack Jews. Why did they attack Jews? Because they thought that the Jews were thinking to themselves, now is the time of our ascendancy, messianic redemption, we're going to kill all of our enemies and conquer the world, or at least conquer Eretz Yisrael. So the Gentiles fight back, thinking that their back is against the wall. It's the days of Joshua. You know, the Jews are on the march, on the rise. So it's a reason, as a, as a defensive matter, to attack the Jews. 22 years later, the opposite holds true. The Jews are on the defensive. Their leader is dead. Maybe now is the chance we can finally wipe them out and reverse some of the gains that they had made over the previous two decades. So are the Jews, in fact, leaderless? No. There's one Hasmonean brother left, Simon. And he's going to save the day. Okay. So, Trifon wants to invade Judea and destroy the remnants of the Hasmonean army. Because remember, there were 40,000 men strong, and 37,000 of them went back south. They're still very much alive and well, ready to fight another day, if need be. And Trifon, who wants to conquer the whole countryside and assert himself as the king of, of, of Syria needs to win an impressive victory against these folks. It's not enough just to slaughter a thousand guys uh, trapped in, in Akko. But Jonathan was still alive? So Jonathan is still alive, prisoner. still alive and a prisoner of Trifon at Akko. Okay. So, in the book of Maccabees, as is often the case, the fate of Jewry is um, conflated with the fate of the Hasmonean dynasty and army. It's, it says in the book of Maccabees that Trifon wanted to come down to Judea and commit a genocide. Wipe out the Jews. Is that really true? Probably not. What he wanted to do was destroy the Maccabean army. But since, the, in, the book of, in the eyes of the book of Maccabees, and in, in the eyes of that author, the demise of the Maccabean army is the, the, sort of the death knell for Jewry, so he could say they wanted to slaughter the Jews. Okay. Now, Simon humbly rallies the people. He says, I'm not my brother Judas, and I'm not my brother Jonathan. Um, I, I can't compare myself to these great men of the past, of my father Matityahu, but I'm all that's left. And I'm willing to fight the good fight on behalf of our nation and our freedom. So uh, will you follow me? Milah Shem kind of situation again. And the people, so, uh, they agree to accept him as the military leader in place of Judas and Jonathan. Simon continues the efforts to fortify Jerusalem, because remember, the southern part of the country, including Jerusalem, is in Ju- entirely in Jewish hands. So he, he knows that the enemy is on the march and could be here soon. I had better uh, build up the fortifications of Jerusalem. He sends troops to conquer Yafo so that they can dispatch embassies to Rome if need be. And then we have the, the uh, encounter with Trifon. Trifon says, he makes up an excuse why Jonathan was taken as a prisoner, and why this plot happened in the first place. Not that he's an evil son of a gun and he just wanted to be a butcher and kill his enemies. No, no. Jonathan owed money to the government, and so he's being held hostage until the Jews pay the money. How do you like that? And why did he owe money? So the text of the book of Maccabees says because of his holding official office. In other words, that 
there was a price, maybe an annual price, for holding the office of the high priest or being the governor of the Judean state, uh, and he didn't pay it. Alternatively, if you look in the, some of the footnotes and the other literature, it says that he may have borrowed money from uh, the Seleucid government to, f- to finance his army. That may all well be true, but it doesn't really matter. What really matters is that Trifon wanted to bump off a powerful rival. So, the deal is this. If you send a hundred talents of silver uh, as payment and give Jonathan's two sons as hostages, then he will be released. So if you were Simon, would you, would you do it? Would you take the deal? No. Why not? Well, it's not your kids, it's his kids. Your nephews. He didn't have a jo- uh, Changing prisoners, that's all. Okay, so there's a long history of having hostages, uh, uh, you know, the sons of, of political leaders being taken as hostage and, and not being harmed in any way, just being le- left to live as VIPs under house arrest somewhere else. And paying bribes is a standard practice. So you could say, well, it's a standard deal, let's take it. The book of Maccabees uh, says, and let's assume that it's being honest in its description, that Simon knew or suspected very, very strongly that Trifon was bluffing, that this was a, uh, there was treachery involved here, and that even if he, if he cut the deal, Jonathan was not going to be released. So if he has that in mind, that's his suspicion, even more reason not to do the deal. But he does it anyway. Why? Why does he give over the hundred talents of silver and more importantly the two sons of Jonathan in exchange for what he hopes will be a, a, a live Jonathan in return? What? He can use a live Jonathan. So, alright, yes, if the, if the deal actually was uh, put into effect and both, both parties uh, adhered to their obligations, Simon could use a live Jonathan uh, because he was a great leader and, uh, and his own brother and you, you, you need every, every able leader you can get. But, if he assumes that the other side is going to renege on the deal, why go ahead with it? To rally the people. Okay. Yes, in the sense that if he doesn't take the deal, the Jews could accuse him of not having done enough to rest to save his brother. That uh, when he had the chance to save his brother, he chose not to. And why did he choose not to? Maybe because he wanted power for himself. Uh, to replace his brother. Any number of reasons you could, you could, uh, you could give Lashon Hara about Shimon why he didn't do the deal when he could have. So for these, these reasons of uh, you know, the internal constituency, knowing that it's not going to work out, he does it anyway. And the boys, uh, his nephews, end up uh, dying as a result. So what happens next? Um... Trifon gets the hostages, takes the money, and refuses to release Jonathan. Then Trifon tries to enter Judea to invade, but he doesn't want to go through the, uh, the direct path from the Galilee through the Sumerian highlands to Jerusalem, because you can't travel with a large army through rough terrain that, is known, uh, that the Jews know much better than the, than the, the uh, Syrian soldiers. So he wants a more direct path without uh, physical obst- topographical obstacles. So he goes via Transjordan down the, the Jordan River Valley and tries to enter v- from Jericho, from, uh, from the east. 
But in every way, Simon blocks his path. The, Simon will not allow Trifon to enter the Judean country uh, and take Jerusalem and reverse all the gains that the Jews have made over the last few decades. So, what does Trifon do? Realizing that he's not going to win, he has Jonathan killed, and Jonathan is buried at, in some random place east of the river, and Trifon turns around and goes back north, goes home, uh, trying to secure his authority over the Seleucid kingdom with Demetrius II still very much alive but on the run uh, and still a contender to the throne. Simon recovers the body of his brother Jonathan and has him buried at Modi'in. He builds a big uh, mausoleum with seven major tombstones for his family members with seven big pillars which according to the book of Maccabees is still around Ad Hayom HaZeh. No trace of it now. So, sure. Arayom Azeh, when the book of Maccabees was written, is the year 90 before the Common Era. So the fact that there's no trace of it now doesn't contradict Arayom Azeh in the, the book of Maccabees. Um, why seven? Why seven pillars? Four brothers. Four brothers. Mother. Father. Mother. Mother, I A mother, yeah. And, uh, let's see. No, that's six. That's six. Five brothers. Four brothers were dead. One for him when the time One comes. for him when the time comes. So he planned ahead. So he, you know, he called the Sinai chapels and had the, the tombstone made ready for him before he was dead. But he, within a good decade, he'll be gone too. So it's a good thing he did it. Um, so Trifon then kills Antiochus VI. Remember, Trifon was not a, 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 send, a descendant of a monarch. He was just... A, 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 an officer who was functioning as a regent of a child king. How does he have Antiochus VI killed? So according to some of the scholars, Antiochus VI had uh, some kind of kidney stone, and the surgeons were operating on him, and Trifon had the surgeons butcher him during the, during the procedure. We don't know exactly, but he wasn't very old. Okay, now Simon petitioned Demetrius for tax exemptions, and Demetrius consented, and forgave past sins. What's going on here? Well, remember, Demetrius II was a competitor with Alexander Ballas for the throne. The Jews had been on the side of Alexander Ballas, and he lost, and Demetrius won, at least temporarily. And Demetrius was kind of basically an enemy of the Jews um, for some length of time. Then, you have the episode with Trifon and Antiochus VI, so the Jews are siding with him, at least temporarily, until Trifon turns on the Jews. So the, 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 the Hasmoneans and the Jews, generally speaking, have a, a long history with Demetrius II of siding with his opponent. But now, there are no opponents, or at least the opponents are even worse. So Simon says, let me try one last effort to curry favor with this fellow, who... Um, is a, is a contender to the throne. So they knew where he was. They knew where he was, yes. He, he had fled a, a two years earlier to points east, but he still had an army and was still fighting for control, possible control of Antioch, the capital. And Demetrius says, I forgive your past sins. What are the past sins? Siding with the other team. Political sins. It's not breaking Shabbos and eating pork. This is a political sins. 
I'll, I'll, I'll uh, get rid of the taxation, I'll, we'll let bygones be bygones, and now we'll be on the same team. Okay, fine. The Jews see this as a new era of freedom under Simon. Because, uh, yes, they're still nominally recognizing the overlordship of the Seleucid monarchy, with Demetrius II being the, 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 the current so-called reigning monarch, even though he's not really a reigning monarch. Uh, but he has no control over the land of Judea. So basically the Jews are free. They're autonomous, if not outright independent. And that's a wonderful thing. So the Jews recognize Simon as the high priest, as the commander, and as the political chief. Three different offices held by one man. It's pretty impressive. And what Simon doesn't do, what he does not do, he does not take the title of king. Why not? Okay, so it would it would be insurrection against Demetrius. So there there is that concern. But by the year 142, 141, even that is no longer a factor because the Jews then reject Demetrius and say we're independent. When Simon first uh, becomes high priest, he is appointed that, to that job by Demetrius, which um, is important because some Jews still thought that the high priest can only be appointed by the heathen king. You can't just arrogate the office to yourself. So, in the beginning of Simon's days, they recognized there was a foreign overlord, but eventually they reject him completely. Yet, even when they reject him, Simon doesn't take the title of Melech, of king. Why not? Huh? Okay, so the Bible says that there will be a king who uh, will come from the Yatzachotem Igeza Yishai, the Neitzem Yisharashav Yifre. It's one of the Haftorahs. That the shoot will come forth from the, uh, the tree of, uh, of Yishai, of Jesse, the father of David. Which means that the messianic figure is a Davidic figure, not a Kohen from the clan of Yehoyariv, which was the Hasmonean family. So he doesn't take the title of king for internal Jewish reasons. Uh, that he's not the Messiah, he's not the messianic successor. It's not, it's not an issue of the Seleucids anymore. He's satisfied with other titles. What other titles might he take? So there's Nasi, which appears in the Tanakh, the book of Yechezkel. Well, Nasi is not the same thing as, as Melech. But the Yad Nasi freed Shev, correct. He also the title of Nagid, the title of Sar, and the title of Rosh. Rosh was the more popular one, and later we'll find coinage that says that Yochanan Kohen Gadol, John Herkinus, the son of Simon, was Rosh Hever HaYehudim, the head of the congregation or the society of Jews. Rosh Hever HaYehudim. So Nagid, Nasi, Rosh, and Sar are titles that are in place of the, t- the, the uh, title of Melech. All this happens in 142 before the Common Era. The last two heathen strongholds in Judea were at Gazara, which is basically south of Yavne, towards, towards the coastline, but not all the way to the coastline, west of Jerusalem, and the Acre in Jerusalem. Now that Simon has a free hand to do whatever he wants, because basically no Gentile authority is there to, to boss him around anymore, and even Demetrius is only uh, nominally in control of things from a distance, so Simon is ready to attack. 
he forces those at Gazara and, and Akra to surrender. He puts religious Jews who are loyal to the Torah at Gazara, and he sets he settles his son John Hyrcanus there, who would become who would soon become chief of the army. And Simon himself purifies the Acra on the twenty third of Er in the June third one forty one BCE, and he himself settles there right next to the Temple Mount. So he's the Kohen Gadol, and he lives on the spot in the city where the old fortress of the heathens was located. So they, they kick out the bad guys, the community of sinners, the, the, the Gentiles, whoever they were, gone. Now Jerusalem is entirely pro-Jewish and pro-Hashmonai. Okay. On the 18th of Elul, or September 13th, 140 BCE, there is a major gathering of the Jewish community of Jerusalem, and really of the entire province of Judea, and they pass a decree making Simon and his heirs the high priest and prince. This is a major step forward towards, uh, well, it's, it's independence, really, political independence, a declaration of, of the sovereignty of Jews over themselves, over the land of Israel, and a change in the nature of government. Because up until this time, by what right did the Hashmonaim uh, exert authority? In the days of Matityahu, it was his act of zeal that pushed him to the front of the fight, but he held no office. Judah cleansed the temple, but held no office. Yonatan, starting in 156, was, uh, was judging the people as sort of a mafia don, and in 152, as the high priest, by virtue of being appointed by the, by the heathen kings, Simon, in 143, after his brother's death, becomes uh, the high priest and had already been appointed a strategos, uh, uh, an officer of the Seleucid monarchy, as a military officer, um, but that's just because of his own talents. He was a leader. Now in 140, what are they doing? They're saying this is a hereditary dynasty. It's not because uh, you're, you're in control because you're talented, but rather this family appears to be uh, the, the, the family that has wrought salvation for, our, for our, our nation, and therefore, in perpetuity, they will be in control. But is it really in perpetuity? No. There is a, uh, a caveat, and that is it says... Simon and his heirs will hold religious and political office until a true prophet shall arise. What does that mean? Until a true prophet shall arise. It means uh, that Eliyahu Hanavi will arrive lifnei yom gadol v'nora. Okay, again, one of the Haftorahs. That uh, we wait, hinenochi shalech lachemet Eliyahu Hanavi. I, God, will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the, of the Day of Judgment, that the Day of Judgment is Messianic times, a Davidic uh, descendant will ascend the throne, but who's going to put that into place? Some prophet of God, Elijah the prophet, or someone in his stead. We don't have that now. There's no prophecy. You could say Ruach HaKodesh, whatever, but there's no prophecy. All we have is our own assessment of the realpolitik that says the Mechashmanim are doing a very good job, Yeshikoach, keep doing it. So when a prophet comes, then we'll change the political uh, uh, setup. But for the moment and for the foreseeable future, you guys, your family, will be in control. All right. That's what they decide. I'm just wondering how many people really thought 
that Eliyahu would come tomorrow or next week or next month. Other than an Anatevka, uh-huh. you really didn't have, you know, I mean, I don't think he's coming tomorrow. Okay, so, so here's the point. From the 160s through the 140s, many, many Jews believed that the prophecies of the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah, were on the verge of being fulfilled by heroes who were of flesh and blood, but very much alive, and were accomplishing great things that had been predicted by the ancient seers of Israel. And sometimes the Hashmonai family would have to wait um, for the, to, to, under, before deciding their next political move to see if certain prophecies really were being fulfilled. Like the Mizbeach? Like the okay, uh, why there was the delay in 164 for the rededication of the altar. Concerns about the fulfillment of old prophecies really did affect the behavior of the key actors for that whole generation. Now you could say maybe they were not sincere believers and they were just doing it because others were sincere believers and they didn't want to offend their sensitivities. I don't know, I wasn't there. I can't tell you what any individual uh, Hasmonean or military leader believed privately, but there were plenty of people who really did think that to the letter, to the, you know, to the, to the dot the I's and cross the T's, we're going to fulfill the prophecies of the past. So with that said giving control of the country to a family that doesn't officially deserve it must perforce be temporary until some prophet arises. Okay. Now, the book of Maccabees, first book, um, depicts the prophecies of Israel's glory being restored as beginning to come true in Simon's time. What's the, the standard verbiage for uh, in the Bible for peace and good times? What's the, the, the one sentence that, that is repeated? Man rests underneath his fig tree in his, in his vineyard. So let's now read from the book of Maccabees, chapter 14, about Simon, and what the author has to say took place in Simon's time. Okay, I quote, The land had peace as long as Simon lived. He sought the good of his people. They welcomed his rule and his glory as long as he lived. By means of all his glory, he captured Jaffo to be a port, and he secured access to the islands of the sea. He proceeded to extend the territory of his nation after conquering the land. He collected large numbers of prisoners of war. He conquered Gazara and Betsur and the Acre. He eliminated the unclean things from the Acre, and there was none to oppose him. The people farmed their land in peace, and the land gave forth its produce, and the trees of the field their fruit. The old people sat in the town square, all chatting about their blessings, while the young men put on glorious raiment of war. Simon supplied the towns with food and equipped them with weapons of defense, so that his glorious renown reached the ends of the earth. He established peace in the land, and Israel rejoiced exceedingly. Everyone sat under his own vine and his fig tree, with none to make them afraid. Ve'en macharid. No one's making us afraid. No longer was there anyone on earth waging war against them. The kings had been defeated in those days. Simon supported all the poor of his people. He sought to fulfill the Torah and wiped out all the impious and the wicked. He glorified the temple and added to its furnishings. Stop. So, he did it all. He was a wondrous leader. What did he do? Well, number one, general peace and prosperity. That's really important. People like that. Number two, 
He extended the borders of the country. Okay, What was once a tiny little nothing of a province is now going to be a big kingdom. And it's going to get even bigger in the next generation under Hyrcanus, who will conquer Idumia and the Galilee and elsewhere. Okay, He kicks out the, the heathens. And he kicks out the impious. He glorifies the temple so that the Avodah is now being done properly. And he uh, sought to fulfill the Torah. He's a religious Jew, loyal to the Torah. What's interesting is that's just like a throwaway line. Typically we think of Jewish leaders as primarily being leaders of the Torah. Well, he's not. He's a Shomer Mitzvot, in the sense that he's in favor of the observance of Torah, but that's not the focus of his activities. He's not recorded in the, in the, the chain of tradition as having been one of the expositors of the law. Okay, in the Pirkei Avot, you're not going to see his name there. He's not one of the, the rabbis. But he's a good religious Jew. Interestingly, the young men put on the glorious raiment of war. Glorious raiment of war. Do you agree with that? That description of the raiment of war as being glorious? What do the, what do the rabbis say about the raiment of war? Is it glorious? Is it repulsive? Were they Second Amendment folks? Were they like President Obama trying to take away the guns? What, what were the attitude of the rabbis towards raiment of war? So, and what, in what aspect of halakha is this relevant? Extra bonus points if you get this right. What type of a war? Is it a war for boundaries? What masechet would this be in? No, Shabbos. Why? You're not allowed to carry on Shabbos. But you're allowed to wear clothing. Are weapons considered clothing? Or masoi, something that you're carrying, a a, a separate object? So if you're a a cosmopolitan, uh, urban-dwelling liberal Pharisee, then the weapons of war are repugnant because uh, we're going to turn the, uh, the weapons of war into plowshares and, uh, and, and we're going to live in peace, uh, peace and harmony, universal human brotherhood in the future. But the wolf will lie with the lamb. So weapons of war are, are disgusting things. Therefore, you can't carry them on Shabbos. But if you're a good, zealous nationalist like, like Rabbi Eliezer, what do you say? No, um, um, a man in uniform with a gun and a, a sword is a beautiful thing. So you can carry it on Shabbos. It's clothing. It's not, not a, a, a burden. Uh, that's a, a machlokas between the right wing and the left wing, even among the rabbis. But at least in the book of Maccabees, so in, the, in recounting the glorious days of Simon, uh, glorious raiment of war. I mean, there's no concept of carrying armaments on Shabbos for your own self-protection. That's a separate matter. If it's time of, of, of trouble, when it's for the sake of defense, everyone agrees that uh, we're talking about where there's no obvious threat now. It's just a question of walking around with a sidearm or whatever, uh, a sword. Is that clothing? Is that a part of your regalia? Or is it a separate matter? And, and is it dependent upon whether you were a liberal or a conservative uh, on national issues? That's how they uh, divide in the halacha. Okay, so... We continue. The first book of Maccabees uh, mentions that Demetrius ratified Simon as the high priest because um, some people would not have accepted him as the ecclesiastical leader unless a foreign king appointed him. Then Demetrius was captured by the Parthians in the year 140. And no more Demetrius. Goodbye. Uh, His uh, reign, uh, ten-year reign, is over. What he was doing in the east with the Parthians, we don't have to go into. It's not re- relevant to the Jews. But Antiochus the seventh, the son of Demetrius the second, now enters the scene. 
Like I said, whenever a king or, or, or a would-be king dies, what happens next? His child, who wasn't with him but is living a thousand miles away as a hostage somewhere or in a safe place, will be the new contender to the throne. So Trifon, who had bumped off Antiochus VI, is now having to duke it out with Antiochus VII. These Antiochuses keep coming. They don't stop. All right? Well, at first, um, he promises, uh, Antiochus VII promises that Simon can keep all of the existing Jewish gains. Because remember, the Jews now are basically independent and don't recognize Seleucid rule. The Seleucids still think that Judea is part of their, their, their kingdom and would like to have uh, some degree of control over what happens there. They want, you know, they want uh, tax revenue and uh, signs of obeisance. Uh, well, Antiochus, looking to, uh, to take over, knowing that he has to uh, defeat his adversary, Trifon, makes promises to the Jews, all sorts of grand promises. But in, in the usual fashion, can we rely upon these promises? No, of course not. So, uh, Simon sends troops to Antiochus, to help him defeat the armies of Trifon, but Antiochus rebuffs the offer and sends the Jewish soldiers back home. Then Antiochus demands that Simon give back the conquered territories. What conquered territories am I talking about? The southern regions of Samaria, the, the coastal areas, uh, portions of the Galilee, all the areas beyond the old Judean province that had been taken, whether by Judas or by Jonathan or by Simon, the, the, the victories had accumulated over time. Now the Jews controlled a lot, a lot of territory. What does Antiochus VII say? Give it all back. It's ours. Okay. So what does Simon do? He refuses. Antiochus then sends uh, Kendall Bios, one of his gender, generals, to, to harass the Jews. And Simon appoints his son, John Harkness, to lead the fight against the enemy. Why his son and not himself? Because Simon is already old. It's now the year 138 before the Common Era. Simon, 30 years earlier, in 167, as the son of Matityahu, was already fighting in his youth uh, against Antiochus IV. So after 30 years of fighting, you get tired. All right? The old bones uh, have arthritis, and he can't uh, lead the charge anymore. So he deputizes his son, John Hyrcanus, to be the leader. But the Jews are a little bit reluctant to fight. And they get to a certain river, a brook, a body of water that separates them from the enemy, and it's time to push the assault against the enemy, and the Jews don't want to budge. So according to the book of Maccabees, which of course is trying to glorify the Hasmonean brothers as best as they can, says what? That Shimon, even in his old age, pulled a Nachshon ben Aminadav. What did he do? He jumped into the water first, and everybody followed. And they won the day. They defeated the enemy. Okay, so this was in 138. Life is relatively quiet for the next four years. And if we believe the book of Maccabees, the economy was good. All right, everybody was underneath the vine and the fig tree. And there were no enemies attempting to reconquer Judea for the Seleucid kingdom. The Jews are very strong at this point. But just when the Jews are very strong vis-a-vis -vis their uh, outside enemies... There is going to be a fifth column. There's going to be some traitor within our ranks, the enemy within. And who is it? The son-in-law of Shimon. The son-in-law of Shimon who lives at Jericho and was one of the wealthy Jews of Jericho who historically uh, 
were not very loyal Jews. They were a people who, who loved great wealth and were indifferent to the national plight of Am Yisrael. And, and then in later in the rabbinic period, they don't listen to the rabbis in matters of halakha and often had to be chastised for their irreligiosity. Uh, but his son-in-law lives at Jericho, is the local chieftain, and his name is Ptolemy. Wait a second. Shimon allowed his daughter to marry a man named Ptolemy? Was this even a Jew? Ptolemy is a Goyesh Naman. So he was a Jew, but an assimilated Jew at that. And the, and the Jews of Jericho, as I said, were not very religious, and had historic connections to the old Ptolemaic dynasty when the Egyptians controlled Eretz Israel. So this guy was a suspect character. But he married Shimon's daughter. He throws a big party at the palace in Jericho. And while there, um, plies the, uh, the father-in-law and the brothers-in-law with drink, strong drink, wine. And then when they least expect it, people come from behind the curtains and they take a knife and they stab Shimon and two of his sons. Okay, so they killed the father-in-law and the two brothers-in-law. The one brother-in-law who was not there was John Hyrcanus, who was at Gazara to the west and was the head of the army. As the only survivor, he will be the next leader. But the plot by Ptolemy was not just to kill Simon and those who were in the palace. There were, it was a three-pronged assault. One was to kill the guys in the palace. That was successful. The next prong of the assault was to conquer the temple at Jerusalem. But that failed because by 134, February 134, the temple um, authorities are firmly loyal to the Hasmonean dynasty and to Simon, who was recently murdered, as their high priest, as their Kohen Gadol. So Ptolemy's goons are expelled from the Temple Mount. They fail to you know, take over the key institutions of state in the capital. And then the third prong of the assault was to kill John Hyrcanus at Gazara using um, basically undercover agents who would pretend to be his friends and then put a knife in him. But because someone had run fast from Jericho and got there ahead of the goons, they informed John Harkonnes, your father has been killed, your brothers are dead, and by the way, it was done by your brother-in-law, and he's sending his uh, mercenaries to come and get you, you better watch out. So when those mercenaries showed up, they were executed on the spot. Okay, why did Ptolemy do this? So you could come up with a few different theories, and the, the, uh, the scholarly literature in the Book of Maccabees offers three theories. One which is probably the least likely, that Ptolemy was a good Jew, but one who believed sincerely that the era of heathen domination over Am Yisrael had not yet come to an end, that, it was, that in the divine plan of things, there is going to be freedom and independence at some point in time, at a messianic time. But that time has not yet arrived. And Simon, having, overthrow, having thrown off the yoke of Seleucid sovereignty and declared Jewish independence, had done wrong in the eyes of God and had to be eliminated and we had to bring back the, uh, the legitimate authority of the Syrian king as a religious matter. Okay, I reject that as being a, a, a bad explanation. I don't think that's what happened. 
Exactly. I, I don't think that he was concerned about prophecy and what was God's plan. Uh, the second possibility is that he was a collaborator with uh, Antiochus VII and may have uh, planned this in advance that he would conquer, he would eliminate the leadership, conquer the, the, the physical institutions of state, and then hand over the authority to Antiochus VII in return for him being recognized as the leading Jew and being the strategos or the, uh, the authority figure under Syrian leadership. The third possibility is he may have been a good Jewish nationalist or was just uh, in it for himself and was not collaborating with the, with the Syrian authorities he may have wanted to preserve Jewish independence, but under him, not under his father-in-law or under his brothers-in-law. That just pure greed. Why should I settle for being a, a macher in the, in, the, in the Jericho Plains, in the Jordan Valley, when I can have the whole country to myself? All it takes is just a few uh, thrusts of the sword. That's what I think is the most probable explanation. So that's the end of the first book of Maccabees. And it's the end of the story of the five Maccabean brothers, all of whom die at, uh, not from natural causes. What happens next is the 30-year reign of John Hyrcanus, Yohanan Kohen Gadol, who is seen in the literature as something of a mixed figure. Because on the one hand, he was a great national hero, he conquers more territory, and in his time, there is, if not peace, because he, he's a, an expansionist, at least there is you know, victory in war. There isn't uh, the tremendous loss of life and, 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 and a drain on the economy. There is a time, time of flourishing, good times. On the other hand, religiously, he's remembered in a negative way, because late in his career, supposedly, he became a Sadducee, or turned against the proto-rabbis, the, the, the proto-Pharisees. We'll have to discuss that at length over the next two sessions. What, what really happened during his 30 years? What was his relationship to the Samaritans, to, this, to the Seleucids, and to the religious authorities in Jerusalem? But whether you loved him or you hated him, he was a very, very powerful man. And it was the height of um, Hasmonean glory. Simon achieved independence... On the heels of Jonathan's assassination, Simon took the situation from being desperate to being very, very good. He is remembered as a hero, and his son will do even bigger and more bold and bolder things. Um, it's just a question of whether religiously we look upon him favorably or not. So we'll come back next week and find out is he a good guy or a bad guy.